Well, we are continuing this sermon series, Eyewitness News. If you've not been around, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and we're now on Mark chapter 6. Last weekend, uh, we were looking at Mark 5, uh, this uh, incredible, somewhat scary story of this demoniac who uh, encountered Jesus, uh, and uh, the demons were driven out, and the people in that area said to Jesus, go away, we don't want you here, and, and he did. Now we're moving into Mark chapter 6 in a, in a sandwich. One commentator says Mark likes sandwiches. He likes to sandwich two stories into one. Last weekend it was go away, and this weekend it is please come and uh, help us and be with us. So as we think about this, uh, this message, hey, I'm a believer now, we're going to look at Mark 5. Uh, 21 to 43. We are not yet in Mark 6. That was a deliberate error. Did you notice that? We're in Mark 5, Mark 6 next week. I'm ahead of myself. So verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Would anybody like to admit that they can remember 1968? Can anyone Remember 1968, it was quite a phenomena. I think in response to, to the phenomena of the Beatles, the monkeys were 
created, led by a little English chap called Davy Jones, who sadly died just a few weeks ago. Their most famous song was, I'm a Believer. But there's a bit of background to the song. The song was written by Neil Diamond. Um, and when it came to recording the song, the producers decided that the monkeys were not allowed to actually play their instruments for the song. And so they, they shot a music video back there in 1968, uh, singing and playing for I'm a Believer. Uh, but not only are the fashions unbelievably terrifying, but in addition to this, it's rather obvious that they're not actually playing. I think they were trying to make it obvious. The drummer is barely hitting the drums. In fact, rather than me talk about it, why don't you just take a look? Did you notice the drummer Mickey Dolenz actually gave up drumming after a while? He was obviously pretty fed up with the whole thing. I'm a believer, and yet because of the background of the song, it all appeared to be rather unbelievable. Sometimes I feel like that when Christians tell me that I just need to believe. I don't know what they mean when they say that. Believing is certainly a very common biblical word and a very important word. There is an entire gospel that is written simply to help us to believe. It's John's gospel, John 20 and verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Belief connecting with life. Jesus in Mark 9, 23 said, everything is possible for one who believes. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers. The very first collective noun that is used in the New Testament to describe us is believers. It's the very nature of who we are. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to Believe? Does it mean that we just say something and therefore by saying it, we're suggesting that we believe it? Um, we always pray in our staff team before these services. We prayed this morning and I enjoy that. We join hands around the table, gets a bit sweaty occasionally, but I enjoy the fact that we pray together. Sometimes when I go to speak in uh, other churches, I get a bit scared of the prayer before the service because I was feeling pretty good till then. And then people say, oh, Lord, um, thanks for Jeff being here tonight. We want the blind eyes to be opened. We want the deaf to hear. And, Lord, we know there's only 13 people sitting out there right now, uh, half of whom are actually dead, but we are believing for 500 people tonight. As if by saying it, and by saying it in that kind of tone of voice, means 
that we are believing. Is that what it means? Or there are others who try to formulize belief. They talk about laws of faith, A, B, C, D. They normally begin with the same letter. And if you just follow this track, then you'll get what you want. It turns God into a vending machine, and it doesn't work. Because there's variety in this, in this story. This woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Does that mean that we now need garment-touching healing services? Not only that, but there's diversity in his methodology. Jairus says to Jesus, will you come to my house? Can you imagine Peter standing in the corner taking notes? Right. The way to get a big healing is to invite Jesus to come to your house. Check. Matthew chapter 8, a centurion shows up and says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to come. You're not, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word and, uh, and there'll be healing. Peter crosses out that earlier statement. All oh, right, okay, the way to get Jesus to heal someone is to say, don't come over to my house. You see, this is not just about a methodology. What does it mean to believe? And as we explore this together today, I want to take a risk for a moment. There's a couple of risks in this sermon, so brace yourselves. Some of you are looking really scared right now. I want you to take the risk of thinking about a situation that you need to have faith in God for right now. Because I want us to apply the teaching of God's Word into our Monday mornings as well as our Sunday mornings. Now, there's a risk in that because the risk is that for the next 15 or 20 minutes, instead of listening to me, you're going to just sit there and fret about that thing because I've just raised it in your mind and now you're going to sit there and be agitated. Now, don't do that. And if you sense that the person next to you is doing that, I invite you to reach out and lovingly slap them. But let's, I'm joking, obviously, but let, some of you are waiting for the opportunity, let's, let's read this through the grid of our experience. The first thing is that believing means facing reality. Believing means facing reality. Verse 23, Jairus says, my little daughter is dying. Man, that's blunt. This guy was an important guy, a pretty big fish in a small village pond, but he was used to managing things. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was used to managing the synagogue building and the services that took place within it. He was respected in the community. He is only one of two people from the crowd that Mark actually gives a name to. And he's at his wit end. My little daughter is dying. Frankly, that translation is poor because it's too clean. They've tidied it up. In the original Greek, this man comes to Jesus and speaks in broken sentences. My daughter, my little daughter, dying. Come and help. That is the feel of the Greek text. Notice he uses the word little. It's a a, a term of tenderness. But he says it the way it is. She's dying. Sometimes I, I hear people saying that believing is pretending that the problem doesn't exist or minimalizing it. It's called positive confession. It's where someone is sick, but you're not allowed to say that you're sick. You say that you're well. Now, where does this, let me be clear, where does this false idea come from? It comes from the idea 
that uh, God spoke things into being with words because he's God. Following along from that is the false notion that we are little gods and therefore our words creatively produce a destiny or a reality around us. Therefore, if I ask you if you're sick and you say that you're sick, you are creating a negative reality. And at the risk of offending someone, may I pastorally and gently say it's wrong. It is wrong. First of all, because we are not little gods, but secondly, because unreality is not required. We are not to pretend that something is when it is not. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was honest. He said, my soul is overwhelmed. Peter didn't just nudge him, put it, tap him on the shoulder and say, you're not allowed to say that. You're supposed to say you're happy. Here's a tambourine. Hit that. No, Jesus told the truth about his situation. When the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Imagine getting that in a prayer letter from an evangelist or a missionary. Greetings, prayer partners. We've been feeling suicidal this month. Praise the Lord. Have a nice day. No. But you see, what's going on here is that this believer is being honest about the situation. Believing is not pretending. It's about reality. Secondly, believing is about asking boldly. Asking boldly. Verse 23, he pleaded earnestly with him, please come and put your hands upon her so that she will be healed and live. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Luke chapter 15, the elder brother's outside being in misery and he doesn't want to go in. And it says, the father went out and pleaded with him, please come in. The, word, the Greek word there is parakalio. Uh, it means to come alongside. It's where we get the word paraclete, the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us. It's a beautiful picture. And this is the same word in this text, parakalio. Uh, Jairus came alongside Jesus and, and, and begged him, will you please come over to my house? Then fast forward for a moment because there's this woman in the crowd She's had a hemorrhage for at least half of her adult life. It's been continual. She has tried everything. Uh, she is now ritually unclean. According to Leviticus 15, the truth of which was exaggerated by hyperzealous Pharisees in Jesus' day, she was probably now divorced or had never been married. Her condition in that culture meant that she was marginalized in Jewish society. And she reached out and she touched Jesus' garment, probably the talith, the prayer shawl. That was risky. I'll tell you why. Because this woman was declared unclean, and by touching Jesus' clothes, she made him unclean. That's why she was fearful and trembling. But just as Jairus was desperate, so this woman was desperate. Because asking, first of all, desperation is often a fuel for prayer. But asking is right at the center 
of the prayer experience. We need to keep asking. Asking moves God. It's interesting because Jesus says, who touched me? And his disciples are freaked out. They say, what do you mean, who touched you? You're you're crowded by, by people. That's like saying in a football lineup where they're lining up the line of scrimmage on the ball. I don't know anything about this, but someone told me that's what it is. Is that correct? The line of scrimmage, when those guys get down there and they've got their crash helmets on and they're ready to beat the living daylights out of each other in the name of sport, and, and then one of those guys jumped up, jumps up and says, who touched me? What do you mean, who touched you? Everyone's touching you. They're about to bruise you. It's a stupid question. But now, Jesus says, who touched me? One writer says, Jesus knows the difference between touch and touch. Because there's an asking touch that moves his heart. I've met Christians who don't like to pray for themselves because they think it's being selfish. Have you fallen into that trap? There's something about growing up that means that adult etiquette teaches us to stop asking. My grandson Stanley, he's three and he's addicted to Starbucks. It's so wrong. (laughs) Now don't you people look at me like that. We don't give him coffee. Believe me, that would be horrifying. But in England, they have these, in Starbucks in England, they serve baby chinos. A baby chino is Starbucks' beautiful attempt to hook people from the beginning of their life until the end of their life. And it's a great idea. It's basically, it's frothy milk with a little chocolate sprinkled on the top. Stanley loves baby chinos. And he says, Granddad, let's go to Starbucks. I want a baby Chino. I do not say, Stanley, that is a disgraceful request. (laughs) You have not yet learned to clean your room. You are not yet fluent in New Testament Greek. (laughs) I love it when he says, can I have? And as adults, often we lose that capacity to come to God, particularly for ourselves, and ask. And then we ask and then we give up. In Luke 18 and verse 1, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Why did he tell that story? It's quite simple. It's because when you pray, the primary temptation is to give up. Is there an asking that we've done and we've stopped now? When was the last time, I'm challenged by this, Can I, I've been really, once again, been saying to God, I want to bring my request to you. Are we regularly, daily asking? Because it's what God wants us to do. But let's balance that. Thirdly, celebrate when others receive what you need. Celebrate when others receive what you need. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? This this woman, it's it's remarkable. She, She has now suddenly been healed. We don't know. Physiologically, she knew in her body this this is done now. This has brought an entire era of her life to an end. Verse 26 says, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. It's interesting that in Luke's version of this account, he doesn't say all of that. He just says no one could heal her 
but then Luke was himself a doctor. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? If you had been this woman and you had this problem, uh, let me share with you some of the remedies that were available, ladies, to you if you had this particular problem. Uh, the first uh, prescription would be they would put gum and crocus in wine and you would drink that. Uh, if that didn't work, then take three boiled Persian onions and mix those in wine. If that doesn't work, listen to this one. If that doesn't work, uh, take the lady to a junction of two roads, put a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come up behind her and frighten her. That's helpful. If that doesn't work, dig seven ditches and burn seven vine cuttings and have her sit over the smoke. If that doesn't work, have her carry the ashes of an ostrich egg around her neck in the summer. And finally, if that doesn't work, the ultimate cure in those days for hemorrhaging was carrying barley corn from the dung of a white female donkey. Makes you want to say, praise the Lord for Walgreens, doesn't it? This woman has been suffering with all of this stuff. Now she is healed, and the Bible says that Jesus is looking around. Who touched me? And she's trembling, and they have this conversation. Notice he uses the word daughter. It's a beautiful word. Jairus used the word daughter. Now he uses the word daughter. Go in peace, your faith has made you well. Now, just zoom back from the scene. You're gyrus. You're happy for the lady. But can we get out of here already? Do we need to have this theological conversation? Your disciples are already saying, never mind who touched you. My daughter is dying. And right then, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Here's a test, brothers and sisters, because this guy wants Jesus to act, but now he has to gauge his response when somebody else, this lady, gets a healing, and that's what he's looking for. It takes grace to ask from God, and it takes grace to celebrate when you're asking and someone else gets the blessing. I want to tell you a little story um, about something that happened years ago, which frankly I find offensive. One or two of you may find it offensive too, but there's a purpose in the story. We were back in England. We had a home, and um, we had decided we needed to have a, uh, our family was growing up. We needed to get a larger home. We put our home on the market, is on the market for a year, similar economy to what it has been here. No one had come by our house. No realtor had called for a year. We could not find a home to buy. One day our son, Richard, was playing at a friend's home, and we went to collect him. Uh, we went to pick him up, and a um, uh, little English thing crept in there. And uh, we're parked outside this very nice home with some trees around it, and uh, we're waiting for him to come out down the drive and jump in the car. And I turned the car engine off, Kay and I are sitting there, and suddenly all the birds in the trees at the front of this house started to sing. Not the hallelujah chorus or anything, but they, they just started to sing. And I turned to Kay and I said, listen to those birds, listen to them sing. And she said, that's right, honey, that's what they do. 
They sing. I said, something about those birds, weird. Richard jumped in the car. This house was not for sale. We drive off. Two weeks later, a guy from Texas comes to our church. He's kind of a spiritual guy, prayerful man. He was meeting with us as a leadership team. Didn't even know our names, knew nothing about us. And he looked at me and Kay, and he said, can I pray with you about anything? We were having a small group meeting. I said, yeah, we're trying to sell a house and buy a house. We're, we're getting nowhere. Would you like to pray with us about that? He said, sure. So he started to pray. And then after about two minutes of praying, he stopped and he said, I've got a picture in my mind of a house. And then he said, I can hear birds singing in the trees. And at first I thought, I can hear some birds singing too. And they're all going, cuckoo. <laughs> then I remembered that house. And the guy says, the Lord wants you to go get that house. What do you mean, go get the house? It's not for sale. Do I go over there, kick the door in and say, get your furniture out. I've heard the birds. <laughs> Four days later, the lady who owns that home called my wife. She said, okay. My husband has had a sudden promotion this week. We're moving out of town. I want our kids to get together before we leave. Kay said, are you putting your house on the market? <laughs> really quick. The lady said, yeah, we're putting it on the market next week. Kay said, can we come over to your house and look at it right now? The woman said, yeah. So we hopped in the car. We put a blue flashing light on the top of the car. <laughs> I'm kidding. We drive over to the house. We look around the ground floor of the house. I said to the lady, we want to buy your house. She said, you haven't even been upstairs yet. I said, I don't care. We heard the birds. I don't care. <laughs> she said, you can buy the house, but you've got until Friday to sell yours. We've been on the market for a year. No one's looked. We came out of the house. My wife has got more faith than me. And she said, we're going to sell our house by Friday. I said, oh, look, never mind the birds. There's a pig coming into land. <laughs> Wednesday, the realtor calls. I've got a guy who wants to see your house. Can he come over? I said, you bet your life he can come over. He comes over. I'm showing him around our house. I am praying under my breath. This is the bathroom in Jesus' name. He leaves. He comes back the next day with his wife. They leave. Why does God do this last-minute stuff? Friday, 4.15, 45 minutes to go. The realtor calls up and says, you just sold your house. I said, I've got to get off the line. I've got 45 minutes to buy a birdhouse. <laughs> and I did. And it happened. And I want you to know something. I'm offended by my own story. I'm both grateful, I cannot deny that it happened, and I'm offended. I've been to Ethiopia. I've been to India. I run a risk this morning of knowing that you might be facing the loss of your home. I tell the story deliberately, not to offend, but to illustrate the point that I'm offended by my own blessing. I'm like, God, if you want to mess around with birds in trees, do it in India. But actually, the truth is, any answered prayer in the Western civilization creates a theological and philosophical problem because our needs are nothing compared with the rest of the world. I don't understand it. But God does it. The longer I go on in this Christian life, the less I understand what prayer, how prayer works. 
But I do know that we need grace to celebrate when other people get their answer. Well, the last point, fourthly, is this. Stand firm in the gap and ask others to stand with you. Stand firm in the gap and ask others to stand with you. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And verse 41, after he'd put them all out, and by the way, everybody, can you look at me for a moment? When Jesus put them all out, he didn't say, I say, I'm leaving. This is very strong. This is like when he drove uh, the money changes from the temple. These were professional mourners. They played flutes. Matthew's version includes that. You, could, you would have to pay people to wail when someone died. And they would wail and howl and cry and scream. And, and, and Jesus kicks them out. And he says, don't be afraid. Keep on believing. You see, there's a gap between when Jairus asked for the solution and the solution came. There usually is a gap. What you do in the gap, what we do in the gap is often a, an indication of our character. And then in verse 39, he says, he says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. What's that? What do you mean? She's asleep. Some people think that that means that she wasn't really dead. No, it's not that at all. That's really clear from John 11. Let me show you John 11, this sleeping analogy. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus was saying, comparatively speaking, it's as if this little girl is asleep because my power, it's just like waking her up from sleep. I set my alarm clock for five o'clock this morning. I set three alarm clocks on Sunday morning. I'm paranoid about not showing up. I woke up at five o'clock this morning, and lo and behold, I did shut the alarms off and went back to sleep. <laughs> at, ten to, at 10 minutes to seven this morning, my wife said, it's just seven! <laughs> I, I, I think I hit the ceiling. <laughs> I woke up. Jesus was saying, it's just like, just like waking her up. And notice that he takes just Peter, James, John, and the parents into the house. You see, when you're really standing in the gap, make sure that you've got a few people that you trust standing with you who can really pray. And he says, little girl, the term is little lamb, takes her by the hand, she gets up. And it says, the parents were astonished with a great astonishment. The word ecstasy, they were ecstatic. And then I love this little postscript. He says, give us something to eat. <laughs> They're jumping around, they're so excited, they forgot to give us something to eat. It brings us back to a day to feed the world. See, there are some things that Jesus will do 
And there are some things that Jesus asks us to do. He raised her from the dead and then said, a meal would be helpful. And the story ends beautifully because Jairus and that woman, hey, they were believers now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your power, which is undiminished. The fact that you call us to ask of you. Lord, as we take these next few moments to respond and reflect, we pray that you will do nothing less than increase our faith and help us to ask, help us to be believers. Would you sit up for a moment, please? Because as we just continue this prayerful reflection, I told you there were a couple of risks in this message, and here's the second risk. Because we're going to do something a little different this morning. I discovered this yesterday. It's called Reaching for Rainbows by Anne Weems. Here's what she says. What's all this touching in church? It used to be a person could come to church and sit in the pew and not be bothered by all this friendliness and certainly not by touching. I used to come to church and leave untouched. Now I have to be nervous about what's expected of me. I have to worry about responding to the person sitting next to me. Oh, I wish it was the way it used to be. I could just ask the person next to me, how are you? And they could respond, oh, just fine. And we'd both go home, strangers who had known each other for 20 years. But now the minister asks us to look at each other. I'm worried about that hurt look I saw in that woman's eyes. Now I'm concerned because when the minister asks us to share the peace, the man next to me held my hand so tightly that I wondered if he'd been touched in years. Now I'm upset because the lady next to me cried and then apologized and said it was because I was so kind and she needed a friend right now. Now I have to get involved. Now I have to suffer when this community suffers. Now I have to be more than a person coming to observe a service. That man last week told me I'd never know how much I'd touched his life. All I did was smile and tell him I understood what it meant to be lonely. Lord, I'm not big enough to touch and be touched. The stretching scares me. What if I disappoint somebody? What if I'm too pushy? What if I cling too much? What if somebody ignores me? Pass the peace. The peace of God be with you and with you and mean it. Lord, I can't resist meaning it. I'm touched by it. I'm enveloped by it. I find I do care about the person next to me. I find I am involved and I'm scared. Lord, be here beside me. You touch me, Lord, so that I can touch and be touched. So that I can care and be cared for. So that I can share my life with all those others that belong to you. All this touching in church, Lord, it's changing me. Here's what we're going to do. Very often what we do just before the pastor prays is that we have moments of response, and that's very good. But in a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple, and you don't have to look lovingly into anyone's eyes. 
I'm going to just invite you to turn to the person to your right and to your left and do two things. Firstly, just shake their hand. And secondly, take a moment either to say to them, would you pray, would you agree with me about my health, about my family, about my home, about my job, about the fact that I need Jesus. Would you take the liberty of just saying a sentence to that person, asking them to come into an agreement, because in a moment we're going to pray together as a community. Or you can say, good morning, and I'll pass right now. That's all. No one has to do anything. But I would like us, right, here and in the South Auditorium to have a little holy chaos as we turn around to our right and our left we share the touch of a handshake a request for prayer or not go ahead let's do it So, Lord, with our eyes open in the midst of this lovely moment of chatter and chaos, we agree with those to our right and to our left on spoken requests and things that are hidden in our hearts. We agree. We agree. And we ask you to help us to be better at believing. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, will you say amen? So now, Lord, we go in the strength of your name. Again, help us to be believers. We agree in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Great to see you this weekend. Our prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, if we can agree with you, we would love to do that. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless.